Good evening. Um, welcome to the Lewis Clark Benuxum Lecture. Um, this is a series that was endowed in 1912 with the bequest of $25,000 under the will of Lewis Clark Benuxum of the class of 1879. And uh, the uh, bequest said that at least one half of the income of the foundation be used for a series of public lectures before the university annually on subjects of scientific interest. And uh, previous lectures in the series have been Edwin Hubble of the Hubble Telescope fame, Thomas Mann, Carl Sagan, and tonight we have Lord Robert May. Um, Bob May was actually a professor here at Princeton uh, between 1973 and 1988 when I first met him uh, in the ecology department. Before that, though, he uh, received a PhD in theoretical physics from Sydney University in Australia, and he was a professor of applied mathematics at Harvard University. He was one of the first population, he went from mathematics into ecology uh, here at Princeton, and one of the first people to apply chaos theory to uh, population biology, problems in population biology. Um, he uh, was between 1995 and 2000, he was the chief science advisor to the British government, and uh, this was during the time that uh, uh, mad cow disease hit the British population, and uh, Lord May was one of the people who was able to speak to the people of England and uh, establish uh, communication between the government and the people which had been um, uh, badly damaged, I would say, in the, in the, in the light of this crisis, and, and uh, Bob May did a lot to try to repair that. Um, he, in 1996, he was knighted in uh, the United Kingdom, and also he received a Companion of the Order of Australia, and he was made one of the first 15 life peers in the House of Lords. Uh, in 2002, the Queen of England uh, appointed him to the Order of Merit, which, and he was the fifth Australian in a hundred years to be given this, uh, this honor. Uh, he received the, in 1996, the Swedish Academy of Sciences Crawford Prize, which is the equivalent to the Nobel Prize for Ecological Sciences. In 1998, he received the Balson Prize from the President of Italy. In 2001, he received the Blue Planet Prize um, for his work uh, in conservation um, ecology. He has many, many other awards. At the moment, he is also the uh, uh, president of the, uh, of the Royal Society. He's also a, a foreign member of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. He's written hundreds of papers, both uh, scientific articles as well as popular articles to explain science to the lay persons. And he's one of the, really one of the most um, uh, efficient and significant people, I would say, in, in the world who's been able to explain science uh, to people and get people to understand what science is, what science means, and to be able to take part in the process of uh, establishing science policy, especially uh, what he's done in the United Kingdom over the last um, 10 years. I could go on and on, but I won't. I will stop here and uh, allow Lord Meng to come up and uh, give his lecture, Hard Questions About Tomorrow's World. Thank you.
It's a special pleasure for me to be here. Um, interestingly, when I left Princeton in 1988, uh, the then president, uh, Bill Bowen, said in a what way I think is really wonderfully revealing in lots of ways, and ultimately a nice way, he said, Princeton will be sorry to lose Bob, but probably Britain needs him more. <laughs> so, wonderful juxtaposition. And I find my, I've lived my life, my professional life, roughly one-third in Australia, one-third in the States, mainly 16 years here, and now one-third in Britain. And nobody asked me to say this, but it is my considered opinion that for a combination of integrating excellent undergraduate and graduate teaching with extraordinary density of excellence in the faculty, this is the best university in the world. When my wife and I decided we had been here a long time and had many of the conversations we were going to have and we ought to do something different, we nonetheless, and I for one, did it clearly with a sense that I would never be at a place that was as good. Um, that was an unsolicited testimonial. <laughs> what I'm going to talk about today is a rather, and it's not a talk I've given before, it's a rather self-indulgent pastiche of that is going to enable me to talk, I don't think we need the lights down all that much, thanks. Um, <clears throat> say a little bit about infectious diseases, old and new, a little bit about climate change, a little bit about biological diversity, which are themes I have set talks on, and I'm going to introduce it with a larger survey of humanity's interaction with global ecological systems. And so I'm going to begin with a rather imprecise statistic, but nonetheless an interesting one, and it derives from recent work by the WWF, you know, the Panda Logo people, which, as like so many of these things, the definition has ineluctable imprecision, but they tried to estimate what is country by country, and then average for the globe, the biologically productive area that's needed to produce the sustenance of life, food, wood, room for infrastructure, and the diff most difficult, dodgiest part of the estimate, um, the am amount of land necessary for forests to help absorb CO2 from burning fossil fuels. It emits some things like water consumption or release of pollutants. And when you do it, the kinds of components over time, 1960 to a little further ago than the most recent estimate, you can see much of it is cropland and grazing land to supply food, but there is quite a bit that is a bit more controversial as to exactly what is the amount for carbon dioxide. And uh, I, it's one of the conversations I should have had with Steve Pakala during the day and forgot to. And here is the result broken down by broad areas of the world. The, the vertical axis is the average footprint cast by the average inhabitant of that region. And you see North America really is number one in this league, which you could regard, and some do, as a matter of pride and satisfaction, or you could regard it slightly differently. Um, with a quality of life that I don't think is grossly inferior, Western Europe is about half that, 
And then you come on down to the big green thing, which is essentially India and China. The horizontal axis gives you the number of people casting that footprint. And you can immediately see that the footprint cast by India and China, although the individual inhabitant is casting a much smaller footprint, a little less than a fifth of that of North America, and significantly less than half Western Europe, nonetheless there are so many of them that the largest single footprint on the globe comes from that region. To put it another way, I was recently at a meeting of a new institute in Australia that was focused on future foreign policy and the interplay of nations. Much of the discussion would have been, Metternich would have been quite comfortable with it. It regarded the world as a passive substrate in which the interplay of nations took place, and they were discussing what if China's GDP got to rival Western Europe. Uh, part of my thesis is that's not going to happen. Because here is, on that basis, an estimate of humanity's total footprint on the globe as against a baseline of what is the necessarily imprecise estimate of the sustainable footprint that the Earth could sustain. These numbers are imprecise. It could be that we haven't yet crossed that threshold. It could be we crossed it 20 years earlier than this says. There's not a factor two imprecision in my view, but there certainly is a 20, 25% imprecision. And nested within it are all manner of paradox. If you do it by country by country, how do you judge the virtue of an inhabitant of Egypt casting a footprint of, that is small compared to the world average, but is three times that which Egypt itself can sustain? Are the Swedes more virtuous with their five times larger footprint than Egypt, but less than their country alone could sustain? Against that background, I want to talk a little bit first about now patterns of human population growth and some of the associated factors. Of course, it's not just human numbers, as is implicit in what I've just said. The impact is a, is a, a product of numbers times the footprint per person. But looking just at numbers, there are a lot of misperceptions. Many people are under the impression that there's been a slow but steady exponential growth in human numbers which has just now gotten to be so big that it's on the scale that its impact rivals natural processes. In fact, it's not like that. Up to about 10,000 years ago, when we were bands of roving hunter-gatherers, the global population of humans couldn't have been more than a few tens of millions. It was the invention of agriculture that enabled us to begin the rise of population, and even there, that 10,000 years has two phases. The first phase of fairly rapid growth and the second phase slowing down as the kinds of infectious diseases that hunter-gatherers couldn't sustain began to bite in cities. Then comes a phase mainly in the West where the scientific industrial revolution begins both to improve agriculture and albeit not very much at first, help in health, and you get another burst of growth. But the really dramatic thing is in the, really the last 50, 60 years, 
with the spread of a science-based understanding of public health in the 20th century. And if you look at the results of that, beginning in the I mean, there's a wonderful image in one of Walt Whitman's poems that imagines, as it were, if you took all the people alive today and organized all the humans who ever had lived in orderly rows behind this, orderly columns behind this frontal row, Whitman says, you know, row after row rise the phantoms behind me. Actually, you look over your shoulder, there'd be somewhere between 10 to 15 people. It took us till around 1830, roughly, to reach the first billion people. Doubled it in a century, doubled it again in 40 years. Today we're 6.3, 6.4 billion, and we're set to increase that on what I think is a slightly optimistic projection at around 9 billion, assuming, as it were, business as usual, around 2050. Of that added roughly 3 billion, half as much again, essentially all of it are going to be found in urban areas. And indeed, interestingly, maybe last year, maybe this year, there was going to be a child born, maybe in London, maybe in Lagos, whose birth will mark a real tipping point in the history of the human race, when for the first time, more of us will live in cities than in rural regions. If you go back to the 1700s, around 1700, about 10% of the world's population lived in cities. It was a quarter 100 years ago. It's half today on that tipping point. And by 2050, it'll be two-thirds. The number of big cities today defined as populations over a million. Fifty years ago, it was less than 100. Today, it's around 400. And in uh, another 10 years, it will have increased not quite by half as much again. You look at some of the histories of the really mega cities, populations of 8 or 10 million or more. Tokyo is, and there's a bit of dodginess in the definition of a city, or else Shanghai would... Uh, be somewhere in this. But Tokyo was the biggest city in 1700, and it's held number one spot, although possibly not for much longer. There are big differences here. Tokyo hasn't got that much bigger in the last, uh, from 75 to roughly today, to the estimate for 2015. But look at Lagos. Less than 2 million 30 years ago, 10 million today, 17 million, that is unimaginable. Well, it's happening, but it's hard for us intuitively to relate to it. It's often said that, admittedly, populations are growing in the developing world, but that happened in the developed world in the 19th century, and demographic transitions will eventually bring us to some sort of rest. You have to be very unacquainted with the reality of the statistics to believe it's that simple. This uh, slide says in the 19th and early 20th century, slums in Western cities, mortality rates were extraordinary. That's not generally true today. Here is data for survivorship 
in Liverpool in the middle of the, 18th, of the 19th century. You see that half of all the children that were born were dead before the age of five. And the rest of life wasn't all that secure. Juxtapose that with the following statistic. Last year, 130 million children were born. A still disgraceful 10 million will not make it to the age of five. But that pattern is nothing like the heartland of the Industrial Revolution. It's nonetheless an extraordinary addition. Here's an emotional way of setting it. The people, the appalling number of people wiped out by the tsunamis in the Indian Ocean, the appalling number, each one an individual tragedy. But the number of children born on that same day who will survive to reproductive age effortlessly exceeds the total number killed by the tsunami. There are other differences from earlier times. The slums of the industrial west drew workers into cities, usually the center, and then they tended, as industrialization created forms of prosperity, to slow down, and you even see, as you see often in this country, a reverse then outward migration to the countryside as prosperity grew. And that is still the pattern in some, we call, lumped together, a huge diversity of developing countries. There are many countries well along the road, as in China, where those same patterns can be seen, but in many parts of the world, today's urbanization is completely decoupled from industrialization, and even from development as such. It's a Perverse urban boom, and it's sort of, it's a, well, as the slide says, and you can read it, it's essentially dumping grounds for surplus population. And arguably, with the best of intention, many of the International Monetary Fund's structural adjustment programs which derive their inspiration from semi-religious economic theories based on an irrelevant past, have unintendedly had the effect of increasing urban, urban poverty and slums, increasing exclusion and inequality, and weakening cities as engines of promoting economic growth. I now turn to some of the specificities. And I'm going to talk first about infectious disease, and then very briefly about climate change, food and water supplies, and biological diversity. This is an extended quote, having come, become a recent convert to PowerPoint, I have taken to putting up things in words, and I am trying to resist the academic affliction that I'm in the custom of deploring of reading the things that are up in front of you as if you were all illiterate. And this is an extended quote from a recent book on cities that I think is a really quite an interesting and insightful one. And it underlines the point I made earlier that most of the diseases that killed, for example, three of my grandmother's siblings before the age of 11, things like diphtheria and even, for that matter, measles, um, these were not diseases that were with our hunter-gatherer ancestors. The, pop 
population density you need to maintain them didn't exist before the advent of cities. And most of these infections indeed came from other animals, especially domestic animals, and there are some examples. And we've come to think in the developed world, we've come to think that infectious diseases are a thing of the past. And I'll give you a remarkable quote about that in just a moment. But they're not. HIV AIDS, and until recently there was some debate about the origins, but it's now increasingly clear from the molecular history, that if you can retrace the molecular history of the virus, that it came from primate cousins with the expansion and semi-industrialization of the bushmeat trade. And by the same token, SARS, where we were very lucky in that it has properties that make it relatively easy to control, certainly compared to influenza, where there's a, and there's a very short interval between when you are infectious with SARS and when you're symptomatic, which made its control much easier than a really nasty flu will be. HIV has had huge impact in Africa, and in, yet there are other countries, we tend to think of this as being important in Africa, there are other countries some still in denial that are in the early phase of this problem. SARS, coming back to the bushmeat trade particularly, SARS is largely the result, arguably, and I think it's fairly clear from the recent meeting we had at the Royal Society, uh, pausing for a commercial, which is in a, just been published in a short text, highly suitable for a graduate discussion group, because it goes much wider with a beginning of what are the changes in the environment that are, and in our interactions with it that are promoting the emergence or re-emergence of infections, and how much for that matter of, vi of potential viral state space has evolution explored before going on to talk about generalities and specificities about SARS and ending with talking about control measures and with a final chapter discussing the ethical problems that are posed when you have an infection like SARS where the only real fast remedy is quarantining and the ethical problems that poses or would in a more libertarian country between the interests of the individual and the interests of the group. The one thing that's clear, it is if the trade in exotic forest animals has been internationalized and globalized, particularly to serve prosperous, exotic restaurants in southern China, and that's just one part of the global growth of what always was a part of the diet of local, traditional people living in forests, has become, with the expansion of numbers of people, the opening up of forests, something of an industry whose implications go much wider than the obvious and serious ones for preservation of biological diversity to something that touches quite closely on and which HIV AIDS is a particularly striking example of things that touch that fraction of humanity, whether it 
who may not care about biological diversity as such. And all of this makes a total mockery of this, which is my quote, my candidate for the most stupid quote ever. <laughs> Mind you, it's got a lot of competition, and uh, <laughs> some of them, some of them have interesting morals. Uh, one of my close runner-ups is a very distinguished previous president of the Royal Society, no less than Lord Kelvin. If you had wanted someone to make a prediction about the development of uh, aeroplanes in, in the late 1800s, specifically in 1896, you'd probably have asked Lord Kelvin, and he would have said to you, heavier-than-air flying machines will always be impossible, seven years before the Wright brothers flew. So any why I'm trying to focus on present facts rather than prognostications, but I will nonetheless slip into that uh, sin at various points. This is not merely a deeply silly thing to say, and one uh, that is embarrassing in the light of subsequent events. It is also perhaps the, one of the most astonishing examples of American exceptionalism, in that this is a person who obviously was unaware that there was another world out there in the developing world, where this statement, even at the time he made it, in a developed country with vaccines and antibiotics, for the rest of the large parts of the world, it made no sense at all. And it underlines another passing unfavorable comment I would make on some branches of economics. We're under the impression uh, there is, there's a certain fundamentalist religion that says as long as you have free markets and if everybody had free markets, everything would be really great. And there's no question that there are many of our problems that a free market economy is the most efficient and fruitful way of addressing. Uh, but many aspects of infectious diseases are explicit counterexamples. Free markets do not deliver pharmaceutical products for diseases of tropical developing countries that developed countries don't get. And here's one example. Recent survey of the papers published in four leading medical journals the one whose initials are JAMA, which is the Journal of the American Medical Association, um, the New England Journal of Medicine, and two British ones, Lancet and the British Medical Journal, BMJ. Somebody did an analysis of what proportion of all the papers deal with diseases relevant to the developing world. For the two British journals, the answer is 14 to 17%, so between a seventh and a sixth of the papers. For the two American journals, it's 5%, 1 in 20. And these are the papers on HIV, mainly. The free market does lots of great things where appropriate, but it doesn't deliver efficient markets for people who don't have money. And it doesn't deliver efficient markets for things which can't guarantee a return. So even in the developed world, it doesn't give you a good market for developing vaccines against flu. Much less having a capacity in readiness to react to something totally new. Well, that was the end of that digression. Climate change. Here I have an unfortunate slide um, which needs a, a, a comment, and I need to replace it. Uh, but when I put this talk together almost a month ago, I was unaware that there's some recent work which suggests that this particular example of why 
It's meant to be the one slide that says, human influence, global climate change is real, and it was meant, if you go up to that point, to show that against a millennium-long base, the things we've seen recently are off scale. It may well be that back here, about halfway along, there were some fluctuations almost as high, although it does remain true that as long as records have been kept, which is only for the last couple of hundred years, we've never seen anything like we're seeing now. And I think it requires a lot of deliberate disbelief not to see that, quite apart from anything else, as being associated with the fact that there's about a third as much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere now as there was in the pre-industrial times, and that that has an effect on the climate. There are room for doubt about the details, but anybody who denies that there is by this time clear evidence that humans are seriously having an adverse effect upon the global climate, I tend to see as being like the people, and there are many with similar motives, who still deny that smoking causes lung cancer. If you look at the problem, it's not easy to do things about it. I mean, here's where our energy comes from, both globally or, for example, in Britain. And you can see something like at least uh, four-fifths of it tends to come from things that put, well, in this 90% of the global energy, because burning biomass also puts CO2 into the atmosphere, you can clean up electricity somewhat more easily, but even that's not easy. But again, there are real equity issues in it. Here we are in one of the rich countries, rich countries being sort of 20% of humanity with more than half of the wealth and consuming roughly half the energy and putting half the fossil carbon into the atmosphere. And so there are interesting ethical issues of claiming that we shouldn't have to start thinking about doing anything until we've definitely got China and India on board. Um, of course they have to get on board. But let's not forget that what we're seeing happening now is what the rich countries did, and maybe they should be taking a lead in starting to act about it. And there's going to be no one single easy thing that we can do nor are we going to have to await revolutionary technologies. And those who haven't read the paper by Steve Picarda and Rob Sokolow on showing how, on the one hand, there's no one thing we can do that's going to fix it. There is, however, a collection of things we could do with proven technologies, if we set our mind to it, that could be really moving us in the right direction. Uh, I recommend that paper in Science, and Steve will tell you the exact reference. So I move on, this collection of problems, uh, to food. I stop again to remind us, I mean, these are good times for everybody. Fifty years ago, the human life expectancy at birth on this planet, on average, was 46 years. Today it's 64. And you can't relate to that earlier number. It doesn't make sense. And that's because in the same 50 years, the average life expectancy at birth on this planet, the difference between the developed and the developing world has shrunk from 26 years to a still shameful 12. And other things have got better too. Food has never been cheaper or more plentiful. 
the average inhabitant in the UK last year spent a smaller percentage of disposable family income on food than ever before, and the food was more varied. Underpinning that is the Green Revolution, a revolution created largely with public money and serving a largely public agenda, and with some unintended adverse social consequences, but on the whole, doubling food production on only 10% more land while the population increased only 60%. We could easily feed everyone on Earth well today if we could only solve the problem that has been with us for 10,000 years since the dawn of agriculture of equitable distribution. We make most, no mistake, however, we could not be feeding today's population with the agriculture of 30, 40 years ago. And there are unintended adverse consequences here too. Not least from seven times more nitrogen and the signs that the revolution is beginning to plateau while population still grows. What we really need, looking to toward 2050, is a doubly green revolution. Green in more food and green in more reconcilable with environmental values. Nested within this are particular problems. And forgetting this, well, let, let me do with the water. The growth in world water use, because the Green Revolution has brought with it intensification of agriculture, is this pattern of increase, roughly 70% of world freshwater use goes to agriculture, the remaining 30%, two-thirds to industry, one-third to domestic purposes. There are already countries, the ones shaded very dark, that are in net water deficit. They're spending more fresh water each year than falls. How can they be doing that? They're mining aquifers in an unsustainable way. Overall today, there are some 29 countries, about half a billion people that are in that sense in water deficit, but the projection 20 years ahead is that that's going to be a much more serious problem. And again, with necessary imprecision, here is a rather disconcerting estimate. Projecting forward the demand for water, and maybe it won't go like that, projecting forward water loss from pollution of rivers and other forms of loss, the crossing point is somewhere around 2040, 2050. Now, maybe it's later, maybe it's earlier, but there is a crossing point. So among the many things we need be doing, is looking again at the kind of things we grow. Some of our, I mean, look, look at the water efficiency of growing maize or wheat or soybean versus growing beef. There are things we need to be thinking about there, and we need to be thinking, how can we reduce the water needs beyond the best of the current things? How can we be using the our revolutionizing understanding of the molecular machinery of life 
GM crops, if you will, to serve an agenda. I mean, the first wave of GM crops, and this is the problem in Europe, were created for no particular reason. It just happened that way with private money. And unlike the Green Revolution, they have served an agribusiness agenda rather than a consumer agenda. So if, you, if someone is telling you there are worries you should have, and I do not myself think there are either food worries or superweed worries, though I think there are worries about intensification of agriculture which need discussion. If you do have worries and there's no product to buy, then you can understand, I think, what happens in Europe, and it even makes sense. What we need, in my opinion, is to be getting the agenda for the use of this technology back in the hands of the public interest. And that's an easier thing to say than do. If, you if you're a fundamentalist who believe free markets serve everything best, then uh, you'll be comfortable with the fact that it's the interest of agribusiness rather than the interest of the consumer that's being served. But if you don't accept that fundamentalist religion and see it as having a place here and a place there, but let's look at each separately, then you believe, as I do, that we need to get more of the control of the agenda of the use of GM technology back in the hands of those who will be using it, as many are, for a second wave of products that are producing drought-resistant, salt-tolerant crops that work with the environment that are shaped to the environment they are in, as distinct from our current practice, which are crops to which the environment is wrenched with fossil fuel energy subsidies. Well, that is, I think, the larger agenda under the general heading of food and water supply. And finally, I turn to biological diversity, to the world of other living things, plants and animals, with which we share the globe. This is a corner of the Bronx Zoo. And I saw, I think, Anna-Rie Lyles walk in. Maybe I didn't. But one of my ex-graduate students who, when she was working at the zoo, created this uh, cemetery. These are the tombstones of extinct species. They are a very aristocratic, elite set of species. They're not your average one of the roughly one and a half million species that we've named and recorded. Goodness knows how many there actually are. Most of them are invertebrates. Many of them that are known are known from only one place and sometimes from one specimen. These are all our furry, feathery friends that we know and love and can relate to more easily emotionally. These are all birds or mammals. In the total world of species we share the world with, there are about 40,000 vertebrates, about species, about 10,000 bird species, 4,000 mammal species, about 40,000 vertebrates. We're not too sure of how many fish. There are about 300,000 plants. We know them pretty well, up to about maybe 10% of total, maybe. Goodness only knows how many invertebrates there are. There are about a million invertebrates catalogued. Conservative estimates suggest there might be as, as few as only 2 million, but maybe as many as 100 million. I think the plausible range 
is sort of 5 to 10 million. We know very little about extinction. If we don't know much about how many there are, we know even less about extinction. However, if we focus on just birds and mammals, where there are proper catalogues, they've all been brought together, they're not like the beetles, with most of which are still on individual card indexes in card catalogues in different museums, never brought together. Amazing commentary on our intellectual history. The total amount of money spent each year on research on taxonomy and systematics, ask of cataloging life, is less than the annual turnover at Art Auction at Sotheby's and Christie's. Interesting statistic. If we take them as typical, then we can arrive at an estimate. I've just said we're uncertain within a factor of 10 how many there are. If they're typical, we know that over the past century about one bird or mammal species has gone extinct each year. These things with the tombstones, real certificates. And there are in total of the order of 10,000 of them. 10,000 birds, 4,000 mammals, order of 10,000. So if you're a typical bird or mammal species, it's as if you're playing Russian roulette with a gun with 10,000 chambers and one bullet and you're firing it once a year. You play that game, your life expectancy is about 10,000 years. Sounds like a long time, I'd settle for that. But against the history of the lifetime of species in the fossil record, from origination to extinction, it's short. That time, you ask, how long is the average species present in the fossil record before it disappears? And that itself is a tricky question. There are definitional aspects to it. But just take it in the rough. Highly variable among and within groups, but characteristically somewhere between a million and 10 million years. But for the average bird or mammal, conservative Estimate over the last century shortened to 10,000 years. Shortened by a factor 100 to 1,000. And that's a conservative estimate because even among birds and mammals, we tend to know some of them much better than others. Jared Diamond, whose wonderful book, Collapse, is at the moment third on the Amazon.com uh, list of history books. All history books. Now, forget Robert Dunn. Number one is uh, number one on the Amazon.com history list was Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel. Number two, for all I know, maybe Tony Grafton or uh, someone. And number three is Collapse. Jared once spent quite some time in the Solomon Islands looking for the 164 birds, bird species, that were catalogued in Victorian times as only found in the Solomon. There were 12 that no, none of the natives could recollect having seen and that apparently didn't show in any record and that he couldn't find. And he decided probably 12 of these were extinct. Only one has a tombstone as indexed by the certified extinction of the Red Data Book. You'll understand, of course, that academic, academia being what it was, that immediately prompted other people to go back to the Solomons to try and find some of these things that he couldn't find. And pleasingly, or irritatingly if you're him, three more have been found. 
but that's still eight unrecorded extinctions to the one certified. So the estimate I've just given you, 100 to 1,000, is conservative, and I'm not going to inflict upon you four much fuzzier lines of argument, each different, all soft. Looking ahead into the next century suggests something like a 10 times speeding up. And what you can summarize all that by is to say that if birds and mammals are typical, then rather conservatively you can say extinction rates seem set to speed up by a factor somewhere of the order of 1,000, give or take a factor of 10, compared to the average in the fossil record. And that is the kind of acceleration in extinction rates that has characterized the big five mass extinction events in the fossil record, such as the one number five that did in the dinosaurs, or the much more serious one, number three, that extinguished possibly 95% of all species and marks the, the transition from the old age of life to the middle age, from the Paleozoic to the Mesozoic. So make no mistake about it, we are standing on the breaking tip of the sixth great wave of extinction in the history of life on Earth, and it is unambiguously associated with us. And it's not surprising. Each of these things I've talked about, human numbers increase, but food patterns, extinction rates. You always got to worry if someone says things like this around a millennial resonance in their particular calendar. But there are objective measures some of which I've sketched, and one more of which I'll give you before I conclude, that really do underline how our time is different. Round the globe last year, from the tropics to the poles, of all green plant material that grew, of the atoms of nitrogen incorporated into green plant material, more than half came from fossil fuel energy subsidized fertilizers rather than the biogeochemical cycle that built the biosphere. That's a measure of our impact, truly on the scale of natural processes. And part of the problem of doing something about biological diversity in particular, but many of the other problems as well, is that some of the most serious problems, whether they're health or food supplies, or biological diversity, and this slide is biological diversity, are where the money isn't. So what's shown here is the proportion of all threatened species, in a definition that I've not uh, indulged you with, in the red data books, what proportion are found in countries with and you see two-thirds of them, roughly, are found in countries where the average GDP per capita is less than $600 a year. There's about a fifth of them found where it's less than $3,000, and in the wealthy part of the world, it's a little somewhere 10 15%. This fades into my very last slide. Before I turn to it, I, there's one thing I can't resist mentioning because it's such an extraordinary statistic. I want to return yet again to free market things. 
many of these conservation issues, if we are clever, I believe that free market mechanisms, which are the best if they can work, are a large part of the solution. I believe they're a large part of the solution to, to uh, climate change and carbon trading offers real positive hope there. And I believe for many natural, the causes of extinction, causes of extinction, are sometimes over-exploitation and over-harvesting, over-fishing, for example. Sometimes they're habitat destruction, and sometimes they're introduced alien species as we homogenize the world, effectively putting it into a big blender as ships move around and dump their ballast, and often mixtures. These are some of the problems that are both problems of food supplies and fault problems of uh, species survival, like fisheries, Trying to create more efficient markets and ownership is the answer. But for other things, like whales or mahogany, there's a real misunderstanding in much of the economic literature on this. Even if you were the sole owner, if you were to act purely on economic motives, hardwoods don't yield better. I mean, the, the growth of hardwoods is so slow but their return on investment is well under 7%. Whales reproduce so slowly that their return on the capital stock is well under 7%, unlike fish or softwoods, which are higher. So for fisheries and softwoods and some sorts of biological resources, the problem is dissipation of the economic rent and getting an effective sole owner. But for others, mahogany and whales, the issue is really one of the world you want because economic motives would liquidate the capital and reinvest it more efficiently elsewhere. And so there again is another of the things where we need to understand things better and recognize how subtly textured is the interplay between our activities and the dynamics of natural resources that are not amenable to glib simplicity. Final thing I wanted to say about biological diversity, the, like many other things, the hopeful sign is that the Biodiversity Convention, begun in Rio, has now gathered by 2002, 188 countries are now signatory to it, all of them committed to improving the status of endangered populations, and most of them, some of them with help from the developed world, developing action plans, there are, however, interestingly, six countries not signatory to this convention, and they are an amusing collection. Andorra, Brunei, Somalia, Iraq, the Vatican, which is a country, and the USA. A curious coalition of the unwilling. <laughs> I turn to my last slide. It underlines again the extent to which so many of the problems we're talking about are problems which are not helped by the disparities in income around the world, which themselves derive in understandable and not bad ways from the fact that the understanding of the way the world works that came out largely out of Western science gave the countries that are now the developed world, a jump start 
And they used that knowledge always with good intentions to improve health, improve food supplies, subsidize daily life with energy subsidies that broke down a class system where you needed more servants than you do when you've got washing machines. All those things were well-intentioned. We now confront a need to even things out. And it's against that that it's worth looking at this remarkable slide. There is a commitment of the developed world, of the OECD countries, to allocate what to me seems a small fraction of national wealth, of global, of annual GDP, namely 0.7%, two-thirds of 1%, to one or other form of aid. And here is a list of the OECD countries. Only five of them meet that target. The Scandinavian countries, Luxembourg, Netherlands. UK, Germany don't do too bad by comparison with how bad you can be. <laughs> Some of this is not a reflection of public attitude. There's a f here's one thing where I don't have the source, and I may have, I, I'll stand by any other number I've said in this talk, but not this one. It was so amazing that I can't guarantee I remembered it right. The recent study of people in the United States asking how much of public expenditure, so, yeah, about 30, 40% of GDP, about 35% of GDP in the US, I think, how much of public expenditure is given in overseas aid? And would you believe one in 10 people in this country think it's half? Two orders of magnitude. And essentially nobody thinks it's that small. It's an interesting example where I do believe the will of the people in what is a country so rich in philanthropy and with such a record of generosity of successive waves of immigrants who having made money instead of like Brits when they make money buying a house in the country and pretending they're landed aristocracy, giving the money to places like Princeton to do good things with it. <laughs> it is astonishing that that Generosity in the public at large does not translate into the corridors of power the way it does in most of the other OECD democracies to one degree or another, although mainly not to a degree that you would wish. On the other hand, these, many of these are countries without the traditions of generosity that so characterizes the U.S. To me, it's one of the most puzzling statistics. Well, that's the end. It's not quite the end, of course. It is, so, it is so much easier to state the problems. All of them, unintended consequences of good actions. Make the world healthier. Spread, spread simple understanding of propagation of infectious disease to make, make everybody's lives longer and healthier, though differentially so in different countries. Use our knowledge to grow more food and more abundantly, more diversely. Use our knowledge to make daily lives more subsidized so that we don't need so many much of servant classes. And the unintended consequences now pile up and begin to confront us. But with, even so, they're not confronting us tomorrow or 10 years on or 20 years on. It'll, the climate change will give us minor irritations. It will have actually whacking great effects on uh, certain insurance industries and so on, but it's not going produce any genuine global catastrophes in the foreseeable future. 
We're being asked to act today on behalf of a distant future. 50 years on, 100 years on, there is no precedent in our evolutionary history for doing this. The, un the problem of how cooperative behavior even evolved, problem for Darwin is as much a problem today. And we front confront all these problems from a background of no experience of acting today on behalf of a difficult future. Nonetheless, I think the recipe for how we do it is set out by extending a phrase that Joan Didion used in describing the novelist Naipaul. Naipaul himself, a controversial figure, for the reason she set out. She said, Naipaul looks upon the world with dispassionate clarity beyond regret or hope. And I think what we need to do is much more in the analysis of doing what Naipaul did, looking at the facts, however uncomfortable, in ways that are beyond hope or regret. But adding to that the motive to act, and the motive to act has to come from regret at what we see and hope that we can do something about it. I think that uh, uh, Lord May will take some questions, and since I'm up here with the microphone, and if anybody wants to ask a question, uh, wait for the microphone. There are two microphones in the room, one over there, one over here, and you wait for the microphone to come. Um, but since I'm up here, I'll ask him the first question, if he could respond. Um, in the 1960s, when the Green Revolution began, um, it wasn't controversial among people who consider themselves to be humanitarians, for example. Uh, and you said today that biotechnology is being used mostly by agriculture and it's not being used in the public sphere for helping the environment. And, um, but it seems to me that the, there's not the same kind of um, uh, consensus from the humanitarian and environmental community to come on board and try to participate. There is an opposition. And how would you suggest solving that problem? Well, I think the, if we particularize it to GM crops, I think the opposition is multifaceted and it shouldn't be seen as homogeneous. And furthermore, I mean, I'm going to say several different things. Um, it, shouldn't, it certainly shouldn't be seen that old Europe uh, doesn't welcome the new and the bright new frontiers of the new world welcomes it, because we shouldn't forget, I remember vividly when I was chairman of the recombinant DNA committee here at Princeton, and we waited for the better part of two years as, the delay, as we delayed the building of the molecular biology building, and my co colleagues in, uh, came up in the American Cambridge, where there was a moratorium on this work, had to go to the real Cambridge to do their work, and whereas in Britain there was, uh, in Europe there was no such thing. It, it depends on this temper of the times thing. Some of the opposition, what is the worry about the technology? I characterized it by saying the first wave of crops 
were designed, it's, it's largely an accident, I think, that the money that went into carrying the ideas into a product happened this time to be private money, unlike the Green Revolution, which came largely out of the Rockefeller Foundation. But given that it was, it was understandable and indeed quite legitimate that Monsanto, who, whose executives today recognize this has been a tactical error, should focus on doing things that seem sensible. The aim of agriculture, since its dawn, has been to grow crops that no one eats but us. We don't share with weeds, which are just plants in the wrong place, and insect pests, which are just insects with the wrong appetites. And here at last was a technology that offered the chance to do this, to grow things that we could put herbicides on that would be really effective. We could engineer in resistance to insect pests. And that's a natural thing to do. But in retrospect, it wasn't a very bright idea. Interestingly, if you ask who did benefit from it, I wasn't strictly accurate when I said it was uh, the benefits were all to agribusiness. The best estimates that I've seen of who's profited from the sorts of crops that have been developed in the developed world is that roughly a quarter of the profits have accrued to the companies like Monsanto, roughly half the benefits have accrued to farmers, and roughly a quarter to the consumer in lowered prices. Nonetheless, I think it was unfortunate in terms of the larger debate which we need to be having about so many different of the possibilities that our increasing understanding of the machinery of life opens to us, whether it's stem cell research, where the worries are largely ethical, whether it's GM crops where they're safety and ethical, whether it's xenotransplantation where the caveats and worries are about safety and rather than like the bushmeat trade, as it were. Um, and the debate we ought to be having is one in which, which says, which doors do we open, which do we close? What uses do we make of the technology rather than just letting it happen and then deal with the unintended consequences later? And so my take on the... Bio, I believe that the debate around GM crops ought to focus on three things. Are there any worries about the safety of these foods? The answer to that is pretty clearly no. There's, you've got to be careful about any new food, not do silly things, but as long as you're sensible, I don't worry about it. Will they produce superweeds, invasive species? Well, not, and there are here now there's data on this, not to any degree different from ordinary crops. The things you've really got to worry about are garden plants. I mean, the things infesting kudzu came in as a garden plant, not a GM thing. The things that are infesting the Norfolk Broads in Britain, you can buy in any garden centre and still can. But the third one is, what will be the effect on agriculture of this new practice, this particular form of intensification? And it's fairly clear that the first wave of products were very much in the direction that will make for an ever more silent spring. So I've welcomed, for all its discomfort, and the fact that I personally, from the various roles I've played, are seen as evil by both sides because I don't say it's wholly good and I don't say it's wholly bad, but I welcome the debate because if we'd had this kind of debate about introducing winter wheat in Britain and the prairie agriculture in East Anglia, maybe we wouldn't have ripped out a quarter of all the hedgerows in the United Kingdom between 1983 and 1990. And they're complicated issues, and they're issues that the Woodrow Wilson School and people like Lee are 
trying to help us frame, they're not things we're used to. They're a drama we have to enact where the stage is set by science which constrains the action in the play by telling you you can't have cloud cuckoo land. You can't bypass the, de the debate about embryonic stem cells by saying, oh, you can do it all with adult stem cells because that doesn't stand up at present with examination. Sets the stage which constrains the debate, but the stage thus having been set, the debate acted out on it is a debate about values, feelings, beliefs, in which science has no special voice, in which scientists nevertheless must participate, but as citizens with no special authority. And that's going to be a hard lesson for us to learn and coming back again to GM crops, I think what will happen over time will be the second wave of products will deliver things of benefit to the first world and differently to developing countries. Some of the NGOs, on the other hand, I mean, there are NGOs who are concerned about the environment. In Britain, it would be English nature, Royal Society of Protection of Birds. So they will be sympathetic to that. They welcome the current debate about the shape of agriculture, but things that offer benefits to the consumer, allergy-free nuts, ultimately a golden apple that makes you thin and witty, uh, they will welcome it. Greenpeace, friends of the earth, Greenpeace, my transition from physics to biology was in the late 60s as part of my active involvement with Greenpeace when it was an environmental organization. It's transmogrified, and who's to say it's wrong, into essentially a political movement that believes globalization is a bad thing, and it's essentially a political ideology. And maybe it's right, but I wish it would fight its battles wearing the uniform that it enlisted under, instead of choosing tactical metaphors like GM crops. But I, all that being said, I have faith in the common sense of the public. And when there are things they want to buy in the British supermarkets that came from GM crops, I believe this will all go away in 30 years, 20 years from now, people will write sociology PhDs about this interesting episode. Thank you. Um, over here, can you wait for the uh, I will answer all subsequent questions more quickly. <laughs> um, anybody who has to leave should leave. Is there any way of measuring the extent to which deforestation has contributed to the increase in carbon dioxide? Well. I'm not the person to answer that. I can tell you, overall, tropical deforestation is itself in debate as to whether it's somewhere like the smallest 0.8% or as high as 2%. But whatever it is, I mean, it is, I, would, I don't know enough to answer the question. It's too complicated. Deforestation, afforestation for that matter, because there are places where more trees are going up, play a role in the balance. And, and, and sometimes some of the, the benefits that in the short term begin to peter out in the longer term. And uh, would you like to answer that question? The national trends are that globally, in the industrial era, about 55 billion metric tons got cut in half the current global expenditure, current global release of atmospheric CO2, was caused by the conversion of forests to non forest that also is that on net, the biosphere currently contributes to forestation to make approximately one billion. So it's about 15 to 
Steve Yes, we have an expert here in every subject. Um, go ahead. <laughs> my, my question is about the slide prior to this, the OECD aid slide to developing countries. Now you place this with great hope. Now, in, in the beginning you mentioned these three revolutions, and it's the last one that accentuated this great depletion of resources, namely made the population increase enormously. Now, it seems that uh, by helping the poor countries, giving them money, it will make more people join into that category and will accelerate the deterioration rather than helping it unless we find a way of taming each individual's desire for wanting more. Otherwise, it will not solve the problem. It will make the problem worse. Let me approach it this way. At the moment, Britain is about to assume simultaneously the presidency of the G8 and of the European Council of Ministers. And it has made as its two major themes for this climate change and Africa, as Africa being the outstanding example of where there is less sign of slowing of population growth and any other problem. And Tony Blair has set up a commission on Africa which is chaired by a really a secretariat as head, headed by a chap called Nick Stern, who until recently was the chief economist at the World Bank and himself has spent quite a lot of his life in India and goes back every year to the village where he has a house. Um, it has drafted a set of things that it thinks one has to do in, in Africa. And the commission is mainly African, as you understand. And it begins with education. It begins with education and doing something about corruption. We'll set aside doing something about corruption. It begins with education and most importantly, primary education of girls and boys. That is the key to slowing population growth. But at the same time, unusually and surprisingly contentiously, it goes on immediately to say, and secondary education and tertiary education, rebuilding African universities, which have decayed in the post-colonial era, creating some real centers of expertise and excellence, because it's a, it's a loop that feeds upon itself. And it's odd that it should be controversial, because there is an, a strong element of the, as it were, aid industry, which already, I think, sets a wrong tone, that says it's all about poverty and that's primary education and anything to higher than that, particularly tertiary education, is elitist and is not for Africa. I think one of the pleasing good things about the report on the Commission on Africa, and it is one that the Royal Society has had quite a bit of input into, is seeing it in this holistic way as something that you have a, a virtuous cycle going primary, secondary to tertiary and building scientific capacity which is the greatest single force for modernity and thinking about the world as it is, rather than seeing it through various forms of mystery. So to come to the answer to your question, I don't, I'm not pessimistic that if you manage to feed people better, they will just go on having more and more kids. I think the key to it is bringing prosperity, but making sure at the same time you've empowered women 
and you've got a society that is more able to look and make choices, individuals for themselves. And maybe I've got more, too much hope and too little regret in that rosy picture, but it's a good basis for action. Perhaps to uh, simplify a little bit, um, in, uh, again, thinking about your last slide, but one, um, the, the majority of people in the developed world are addressing the kinds of horrendous problems you're talking about, trying to figure out what needs to be done. But um, the people in the United States are at the stage, by and large, of not realizing that there is anything that needs to be done. Uh, except the people in this uh, this room and many others, of course. Um, what uh, do you think can be done to make a population realize that there is a large number of problems of this nature so that they may then force their own government to uh, do something, at least to start thinking about doing something? I have no easy answer to that. I mean, you, you need to ask people who are more skilled in public relations than I am. <laughs> I, I have no easy answer to that. Okay, we'll take one, one more question in the back there on the right. Yeah. Um, in, you know, 5% of the papers in the New England Journal of Medicine and a little larger in Lancet, uh, on problems that face the developing world, uh, largely in, let's say, India and China and Africa. Where do you generate new solutions for the problems that these countries face, and how do we participate? Um, you know, how do you bring them all into this process? Because the problems are easy to state. Naipaul has said them. Uh, the solutions are coming from one place. Where's the meeting ground? Well, again, I, th I think it is partly, it is, if you take the set of millennium goals from the United Nations and, and the many sub-partitions, I mean, it was also just a few weeks ago that the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment came out, which was the first attempt in a really synoptic way to try and blend economics with the kind of analysis of the problem I gave. So too for the medical problems, it's heartening, I think, that the Gates Foundation, which leapt overnight past the Wellcome Trust to be the biggest uh, biomedical charity in the universe, uh, has its attention focused more or less entirely on the developing world. I think that combination of input and then trying to build indigenous capacity in some centers of excellence in Africa and other countries in the developing world, so that you have the resources and you have people who know the culture they're talking about and can see acutely and accurately the problems, setting the agenda for research with that money, rather than having it, no matter how well-intentioned, put in with an agenda that comes from people who don't know the country. So it's a nonlinear problem. It's got to, you've got to be building the scientific indigenous capacity, and at the same time putting the resources there. Well, there are signs that are happening, and I, th I think it is 
interesting, I, I, it's a, that statistic I quoted is one I saw only last week. And I'm trying to have somebody find out what it is about the British journals versus the American journals. Is it something to do with the fact that that is a, a good legacy of old imperialism in that there are still the connections? That, uh, the, and, and I can think of some of my colleagues who, whose professional activity is engaged with, not, not just popping in and out, but deeply engaged with countries in Africa and Asia where the programs have roots that are 100, year, 100 years old. And I suspect we could even learn things by looking more carefully simply at the differences between those publication patterns. But there's still a long way to go. Surely. Prerogative of the last question. You've worked in North, uh, a great deal on HIV. I was wondering if you could give us a sense of whether it is going to be possible to begin to attack the problems of sub-Saharan Africa and while that epidemic continues to rage? Yes, well, this is not a, this is not a good question in order to finish quickly. <laughs> uh, That's fine. Several observations. First, it's very interesting. We can keep, we, we now have antiretrovirals that can keep people alive. We don't often reflect that that has come from the almost unimaginably clever molecular understanding of how individual viruses interact with individual immune system cells. That way we can build antiretrovirals. But we still don't understand. We do not yet have an agreed understanding of the pathogenesis of HIV. We don't understand why and how there is so long and variable interval from infection to the onset of AIDS. Most of the people working in the field are so focused on the molecular descriptive details which have triumphantly enabled us to give antiretrovirals, that they don't even realize the problem's still wide open. And I believe it's unlikely we'll ever have a vaccine against such a protein virus without an understanding of how the populations of escape mutant viral strains in an individual and the populations of different immune system cells interact. And, but I'm nonetheless not unhopeful, not tomorrow, not in 10 years probably, but maybe we'll eventually understand. I mean, most of immunology is still as descriptive as Tycho Bray was, even though the people doing it think they're mutants. <laughs> Which is not to say they're not brilliant, and, and it's, you've got to have the description. But I think longer term, I hope we'll have a vaccine. At the moment, what I would have us putting vastly more money into is simply understanding behavior. Now, why is Uganda so much better than Zimbabwe? And you read various accounts. The, the, the amount of serious professional work in trying to understand why in some African cult, cultures things have gone so much better than in others is minuscule because the money goes uh, to the sexy white coat people in labs and uh, there, there I, I have to say the, the little meeting of some of the Gates people with Bill Gates I tried to do this, and everybody said, how interesting, and then went back to talking about developing a vaccine. And as I said, yeah, another billion on, on the NIH is just no, nowhere. I, mean, so I think that's what I would be putting a lot more money into. Finally, there are, I mean, it's not just sub-Saharan Africa. I really do think uh, 
we're being a bit too optimistic. There's a lot of denial in places like India, and that there's nothing different about India. There's nothing to indicate that there any one set of people are different from any other set of people, except in patterns of sexual behaviour and, and whether it's culture related. And small changes, often that you couldn't detect, make huge differences in the overall transmissibility. The, the basic reproductive number, for just to lapse into jargon for a moment. Uh, involves a coefficient of variation of the distribution of uh, statistical distribution of partner numbers and small differences out in the high activity level can make vast differences. And finally, there, there's a really ugly thing that nobody wants to talk about. If you do distribute antiretrovirals more widely, and Roy Anderson and I wrote a paper on this about 20 years ago, or 15 years ago, that was not received rather kindly, um, pointing out that we don't know enough about the degree to which the antiretrovirals actually render you uninfectious. You may be keeping people alive longer, which of course you should do, and we should do more. But if you don't at the same time try and modify their behavior and bring them into counseling, make sure everything's... They can also be spreading infection, and there are plausible scenarios where 10, down, 10 years down the road, more people are dying each day. And that's something no one wants to talk about. So in short, I don't think simply, it's so easy to back off from the problem, blame the pharmaceutical industry, which has actually brought us these products because they're not giving them away for free, as if that were the problem. I do believe we should be distributing antiretrovirals, but we, I, I, I worry about distributing them without trying to modify behavior at the same time, which is much easier said than done. And I concomitantly wish we would be spending vastly more on trying to understand behavior. Well, we're going to give uh, uh, Bob May's voice a, uh, a rest. And please join me in thanking him once again for coming to Princeton.